Did you have a hero as a kid? Right? Probably Jesus, right? Was Jesus your hero as a kid? You think he was mine. He was not my hero. Who is your hero? Do you have a poster of somebody up on your wall or, or somebody on the inside of your locker? Like a hero, you know, in there? I loved Superman, Batman, Michael Jordan, Dennis Rodman. You may be interested to know. I was a big Dennis Rodman fan. <laughs> Sighs from moms all over. Uh, I was a big Dennis Rodman fan. In his early days, before he really went off, did the crazy stuff. We all have these sort of heroes. Right? Very early on, we come to idealize certain people based largely in some measure of perceived symmetry between what we think are their character traits and their physical traits. Right? So we, we, we see them and they, they look good and we, we perceive sort of embedded in that some sort of character. Michael Jordan's resilience, his toughness, right? Uh, Superman, he's always going to do the right thing. Batman, you're never going to, like, there's, there's these character traits that we, and we identify that with their physical traits, right? So probably nobody in here had a hero who was, who would be generally regarded as uh, unattractive, right? Everybody's heroes in their youth were some sort of attractive, physically attractive person, and we attribute some sort of resonance between their character, their heroism, and their physical traits, we are not unique in that, right? So ever since Genesis chapter 3, since Adam's failure in Genesis 3, and then God's promise in Genesis 3.15 that the offspring of the woman would come and crush the serpent and bring us back into this fellowship with God, ever since that moment, God's people have been looking forward to God's promised hero. That guy was going to be their hero. Right, so little boys, little boys and girls, when they went out to play, like they didn't play cowboys and Indians or cops and robbers, they played Messiah and Goyim, right? They played the Messiah and the Gentiles. He was their hero, the Messiah. He was going to be the king who was going to rule all kings. He was going to vindicate Israel's faith, right? This little, this silly little nation with their belief in the one true God and not this cornucopia of gods and cornucopia of spiritual ways. They believed in the one thing. That's so ridiculous. Well, he's going to come and he's going to vindicate that. He's going to vindicate their faith. He's going to bring salvation through his people to the world. He's going to restore all things. The Genesis 1 and 2 experience brought back to life through the work of God's Messiah. And he is going to be glorious. Right? I mean, everybody's, we, we, they didn't have like iconography, pictures, cameras, right? So, but everybody's got this imagination of what he's going to be like. And everybody would imagine what God's hero is going to be like. And they would sort of fill in the blanks with other heroes of God's people, right? Like we knew he was going to be tall, like King Saul, the first king of Israel, head and shoulders above everybody. He was going to be handsome and brave, like King David. He was going to be wise and rich, like King Solomon. Right? We put together this sort of package of what the hero, what God's hero, what God's salvation was going to be like. When he had to fight battles, he was going to be strong in battle. When he had to step back and lead, he was going to be a good leader. And he was going to be easy on the eyes to help, right? We like what we like. We like a certain physical form. We like a certain symmetry, a certain beauty. We, we want a certain charisma in our heroes, right? A certain vibrance. Like when, they, when they come into a room, everybody knows. He just felt his presence, right? We have these ideas of what this great hero should be like based largely on sort of how we felt our heroes were as kids. 
Surely God's great salvation is going to come through a Savior who would be more glorious than any hero the world had ever seen. That stands to follow, right? That is a logical supposition. The greatest salvation, the greatest hero there ever was would be glorious. Here in Isaiah, look, look just with me at Isaiah 52, verse 7. Kind of approaching Isaiah 53. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. He's got beautiful feet for crying out loud. Right? How beautiful are his feet. He publishes peace. He brings good news of happiness. He brings salvation. He says to Zion, your God reigns. Right? Come on, people. Everybody's cheering. Everybody, the crowd's clapping and shouting and throwing stuff. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together. They sing for joy, for eye to eye they see. Boy, when you see him, you're just going to sing for joy. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. I'm so excited right now. I can't wait to see what our Savior is going to be like. He's going to be glorious. Now, Isaiah th- throws a unique wrinkle into our understanding of who this Messiah is going to be. All the time, Isaiah is talking about the Messiah, this Christ, this King, as, as a servant. I'm not really comfortable with that language, right? I don't, I don't really feel like that's appropriate to call my King a servant. He's going to be this servant. I don't, I don't know if I like that, but I guess it's okay. It's kind of cool if he's God's servant, right? I mean, I guess that's still some measure of prestige still kind of an honor but then everything to the left in your bibles is all sort of unclear on this point and it it sort of leaves it open to our imagination to construct an image of the hero until we come to isaiah 53 isaiah 53 so let's begin in verse 13 of isaiah 52 kind of approach Isaiah 53 together. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. You probably have some sort of footnote there. Uh, My servant shall prosper. There's, There's two points here where the Hebrew word is kind of uncertain. This is one of them. My servant shall act wisely. He shall prosper. He's gonna, he's gonna do what God wants done. That's sort of the idea here. When everybody else, what everybody else has failed at is going to get finished, right? He's going to do his job and he's going to say, it's finished. That's what he's going to do. My servant is going to be, he's going to prosper. He's going to get done what needs to be done. And then notice it goes on and says, he shall be high, lifted up and exalted, right? Those are all the same thing, right? He's going to be high, he's going to be lifted up, he's going to be exalted. Three times, three synonyms. Remember back in Isaiah 6 when it says that uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts? So you would say some person is holy, but then you would say that they're holy, holy, if they're really in the, like, the soup, the 1% of holy, but then they're holy, 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 if they're the, really the most holy person, right? So this is the high, lifted up, exalted one. That means what? That means of all the greatest exalted people, all the greatest kings who are lifted up, this is the one. This is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Like, come on, I, I can get excited about this verse, right? This is my guy. This is the glorious King that we're waiting for. 
This is so exciting. He's going to come. He's going to be exalted above all. When I was in high school, we took a field trip. Love field trips, right? Love high school field trips. Like the learning to screw around ratio is like off the charts inverted from like elementary school. You know, elementary school, you're like, yeah. And high school, you're just the whole time. So we're going to this field trip. And of course, we're in a, we're, our class is in a bus. We've been together for, you know, a decade. So we know each other well. We're just, we're having a great time. This was before phones. So we were actually talking and interacting and stuff. Uh, we're, we're wrestling. We're, you know, we're trying to get the ladies' attention. And we're cracking wise. And we're having a good time. And then we get to the Holocaust Museum. And, right, what was our response? We step in, we're greeted by a guide. I think their parents were Holocaust. They were in the Holocaust. There's a picture in the display of their parents and they're showing us and we're just like, uh, that's this moment now. Look at verse 14. My high lifted up and exalted servant. Verse 14. As many were astonished at you. Why were they astonished? Because he's so great? No. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Wait, what? What? God's great salvation, his great saving servant, our hero is going to be shocking because of how astonishing his sufferings are going to be. That he's going to be grotesquely disfigured because of the violence he's going to suffer. No, 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 no. This must be inverted. He's going to grotesquely disfigure because of the violence he inflicts. Am I right? Come on. He says, as this is what he's going to be like. And look at verse 15. So shall he sprinkle all the nations, or startle. Again, there's a little footnote there. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understood. In other words, he's going to be this great exalted king who suffers more than anybody's ever suffered, and in those sufferings, through that, this salvation is going to come to the whole world. It's through his sufferings that this salvation comes to the world. So the Messiah, our hero, he's going to save. He's going to be his glorious self. He's going to be the most highly exalted one through unbelievable sufferings. This great salvation that we've been hoping for is going to come as quite a shock. In fact, it's unbelievable. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Nobody expected this. Nobody can barely believe it. I mean, literally, I want you to, it's so hard for us to appreciate this with Isaiah 53 because we're so familiar with it. It's literally crushing their hopes. It's literally crushing their, like the shape of their hope. They weren't just hoping in, man, you know, God will save and however he wants to do it is fine. They're thinking, God will save and, and, he's, and it's going to be exactly the way that we want. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be cool. Everybody's going to look at our Savior and be like, oh, yeah. And it's not going to be like that at all. 
Like all your little hopes and all your idea and all the six pack and the long flowing hair and all this is all just gone. At this moment, for the first time, it becomes very clear. This is a huge, huge moment. Look at verses 2 and 3. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 2 is all about how unappealing our Messiah is going to be. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised. Twice it says he's despised. Not my Jesus. Your Jesus was despised and we esteemed him not. Our hero is this unappealing, undesirable person. In verse 2, it says, He grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. What sort of uh, plants and roots grow really well in dry ground and bad places? Right? Weeds. This is, what, this is what God's salvation, Yeshua, Jesus, was a weed. Oh, get rid of that. Ugh. <laughs> that's, who, that's what people thought when they saw Him. That's what people thought when they became aware of him. Verse 3 says that he, has, he, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus had no obvious appeal. There's this great line in one of my favorite bands where they say, uh, when I walk into a room, I do not light it up. That was Jesus. That was Jesus. We have this, this, this fanciful, right? Do we need to talk a little bit about our Jesus iconography? Right? The perfectly washed and poofed hair and the, the clean skin and just, you know, he, he looks like he's just been bathing in milk for 20 years and just like having people like wash his, brush his hair a hundred times every night before he goes to bed. And like, we need to, t- we need to think about this. We think, well, well, maybe he didn't look that great, but when he walked into a room, he had a commanding presence. That's not what this says. Jesus probably, your experience of Jesus would have been a lot more like a a prematurely aged Gandhi than a preternaturally youthful George Clooney. That's how you would have interacted with Jesus and and perceived him. I think it's so interesting in verse 3 where it it emphasizes that he was despised. It says it twice. He was despised and rejected. Let me make this clear. He was despised and he was esteemed not. You know what that means? It means nobody cared about him and nobody cared. Right? There's all these different like, you know, groups out there trying to say, like, here's something that nobody cares about, but you should care. They were like, nobody cares about this guy. Yeah, nobody cares. That's how we received Jesus. Now, you might think, well, this is a prophetic exaggeration, prophetic overstatement. We know who Jesus was really like. We know what he was really like. I was really helped in this regard by a commentator. Kent Hughes, pastor, preached on this. And listen to what he says. This really struck me. He says, this is a picture of the disciples running away from Jesus. This is us. (laughs) Do not think that if you had been an eyewitness of Jesus, you would have admired him. We all think that, right? Not even his miracles made the impact that they should have made. 
Think about all the miracles he did. Like, we're like, oh yeah, Jesus is doing miracles. When's the last time you saw a miracle together with all your friends? Right, just out in the middle of your day. That was happening all the time when Jesus' ministry began. And yet people were like, who are you exactly? Oh, you think you're the, like, how did they not get it? On account of his, just his miracles. His own family misjudged him. This is after he's doing miracles, after water to wine, and his mother and brothers say he's out of his mind. How did they not get this? The woman at the well had no idea who she was talking to. John the Baptist, do you remember when he's in prison? He sent some of his disciples to check in with Jesus and, and said, are you the one that we're waiting for or are we looking for somebody else? John the Baptist. And Hughes concludes this paragraph. He says, our Lord just wasn't special in the ways that count with us. Our Lord just wasn't special in the ways that count with us. Isaiah 53 gives us this greater understanding of who our Savior is going to be. You can see in verse 53, or I'm sorry, in 52.13, he's called my servant. In chapter 53, verse 1, he's called the arm of the Lord. These are sort of titles describing who this person is. My servant, the arm of the Lord. And then, verse 3, a man of sorrows. My servant, the arm of the Lord, will be a man of sorrows. God's salvation is going to come as quite a shock. Do you remember this story midway through the Gospel of Mark where Jesus he's with all his guys and he, he says, now, who do people say that I am? And they give some different opinions about what's been floating around in the crowds. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, what? You're the Christ. You're the Christ. Like, you're, you're my hero. Even though nobody else can tell, even nobody else can see it, because he didn't look like the hero, you're my hero. You're my hero. And Jesus says, yes, good. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven did. And, and then Jesus says, great, I am the hero. I am the Christ. I am the Savior of the world. And let me tell you something. And, and right, his disciples are pumped up. They just had this big moment of affirmation when normally they're getting yelled at by Jesus. So they're all excited about this. And, and then Jesus is like, and I'll tell you what. And they're like, yes, let's hear it. We're going to Jerusalem. All right, amen. You know, like, because they're thinking, all right, it's go time. We're going to Jerusalem. All right. And the Son of Man is going to be rejected by the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Hang on, what? And he's going to be beaten. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be murdered on a Roman cross. And Peter interrupts him now, right? He says, oh, Jesus, you're in the wrong headspace for this, buddy. Like, this, is, this isn't, you're the, maybe I stuttered, Jesus. You're the Christ. My hero, that's not going to happen. Peter rebukes him. It was such a shock. These guys had lived with Jesus, seen his stuff, heard his teaching. And when he describes Isaiah 53 as applied to himself, the servant of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, they said, baloney, knock it off. Why did, why did God send the Messiah this way? 
Why did he do this? Well, that's what Isaiah 53 is going to tell us more about. All we know at this point is that this is necessary. That this suffering, shocking, sorrowful thing that happened to this, the Savior, brings our salvation. I mean, ultimately, here's all we really know just at the, this point in Isaiah 53. We know that, that Jesus did what I need. And he did it all. That somehow this great, sorrowful, suffering experience brought the salvation that is all that every one of us absolutely needs. We don't just need it more than other things. We need it alone and everything else is nice. Jesus did that. And here's the other thing we know about the story of Jesus is that when he came to his cross, when he approached his sufferings, he was all alone. He was all alone before the Sanhedrin as they condemned him to death. He was all alone. Because why? Because nobody else understood. And everybody else discovered themselves to be in a story that was just too shocking for what they were expecting. So what should we do with this now? What should we do with this message today, this great revealing, which for us, for many of us, is sort of old hat? What should we do with it? I think there's two things uh, that are mentioned in this text that give us an example for how to respond. Look at uh, chapter 52, verse 15, the last verse in 52. It says, so shall he sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. I think the first thing we should do is shut our mouths. And the second thing we should do is in verse 2 of 53, when it says midway through the verse that he had no former majesty that we should look at him. Look at him. In verse 3, it says that he was as one from whom men hide their faces. Don't hide your face. Look at him. Shut your mouth and look at him. You know, so much of life I don't, want to, I don't want to preach a whole sub-sermon on this. I just want to just allude to this. So much of our life, so much of especially our modern way of life, like what all of our pre-modern aspirations finally have delivered, is basically to keep us utterly distracted with noise and spectacle so that we never stop and come and look at Jesus. And this is also a problem in the church. So much of our talk, so much of what we do, is dancing around this truth or trying to dance away from it. And I think we do this because if we accept that His glory and our salvation came through this extraordinary experience of suffering and sorrow, this breaks all of our illusions. If this glory and salvation came through this extraordinary pain and sorrows. It shatters our illusions about how we think the world works. That the way to glory and the way to comfort and the way to security is through some sort of upward mobility. That this is what we are like. That we just need to improve a little bit. We just need God to give us a little help and then we can be actualized. That this is actually the way God is. That He just wants us to contribute a little something to Him and He's going to lead us to glory. It shatters our illusions of this. I mean, what can we say if this is the way, if this is the way God works, if this is the way glory works, if this is the way salvation is? 
Look at again in verse 15 of 52, and it says, it says, who shuts their mouth? What does it say? I want you to say a word. Who, said, who shuts their mouth? Kings. Right? Now think about that. When kings open their mouth, what are they doing? Right? They're, they're, the one who, who, they're the ones who have all the answers. When they open their mouth, they're, they're making things happen. Right? They're issuing command. They're giving guidance. They're giving the facts. They're giving the authoritative answer. Right? The mouth of the king is what decides what happens in society. And what he's saying here is that those people see Jesus and they shut their mouth. They've got no more commands, no more perspective to share, no more facts to bring to the table. This is the end of all that was in terms of our sense of the way the world works, how it should work, what we should do next. We're going to have to restart. We're going to have to restart everything and just listen to Him, which is our second kind of application here. Shut our mouths and look to Him. Look at Him and don't run away. Don't run away. Because here at last is the source. Here at last is the, the, the revelation that what is at the heart of all things. You know, I've... It's no secret that I enjoy uh, like sort of the comic book, superhero movies. And I think it's so interesting how in both the Marvel world and in the DC world, right, in the Marvel world, you've got the Infinity Stones. In the DC world, you've got the Mother Boxes. And these are sort of like, I think it's just so interesting. We've got to have some way to explain the power in the universe. We've got to have some way to explain this. But, but with the Infinity Stones, right, if you collect the whole set, you can control all things, right? In the mother boxes, you just have to like, have a supercomputer and you can hack into it and change all things. There's these technologies we're try- that, that have this extraordinary power, but somehow we get to control them if we can just acquire them. But it's interesting that we just have this, we have this longing to understand what the universe is. What is it about? What is it built off of? What's its OS? Where is it going? What is it for? And it's Jesus. It's this humble, somber, sorrowful, broken face. If we we could peel back all the layers of noise and all the hubris and, and see what is at the center, what all things are flowing from and held by and driving towards, it would be Jesus. And, and this Jesus. This upside-down Savior. God's great salvation, your salvation and mine, came to us through His servant, Jesus. And Jesus is quite a shock. He didn't come with all the glory and honor that we had expected Him to come with. Right? He wasn't born in the palace he didn't get archery lessons and lacrosse lessons, and right. He wasn't tutored by all by Aristotle and Plato and all the greats. He came with sufferings and full of sorrows, and in this way, what we know now as and call the good news begins. To begin Lent, this this Lenten season and to approach the Lord's table today, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
I'm going to read a handful of verses here that bring this message of Isaiah 53 into our sense of identity and our sense of calling as well. So I want to read this and then we will sing and then come back together for the Lord's table. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 is where we'll, we will begin. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The season of Lent in the calendar of the church is the celebration of the unbelievable ways of God the undesirable ways of God. We're approaching the table, the Lord's Supper together, where we remember what? That what happened to the body of our Savior, but that it was broken. And the blood of our Savior, our hero, is shed blood. We don't always care for the ways of God and His saving ways. We don't always care for them, but we need them. We need them because there is no other way. And truly, for those who know Him, there's nothing more beautiful either. Let's pray. We'll sing together and come back then to the table. Heavenly Father, we... We praise you and thank you for being the God who saves. And Lord, even though sometimes as we think about the mystery of the way in which our salvation came, the mystery of the, the sufferings of our, our Savior, the sorrows of the Messiah, sometimes there's in us a kind of reluctance, a hesitance, a frustration and yet truly, what, what kind of salvation could we have hoped for from, from someone like you? So holy, so wise, so powerful. And your glory and the glory of our Lord is revealed in the ways that you flip over, turn over, transform our expectations. 
And just as you did that then in Jesus, so you want to do that today in us as well. And so, Lord, we turn over these moments to you, to your spirit, to work through the word, to work through the songs, to work through these prayers, and to work through the elements of communion that we are going to celebrate together. We pray, Father, that you would work. We trust that you are working in these humble moments for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.